0: With the relinquishing of the British Mandate, Palestine is wrought by full-scale war and both sides in its harbor become the center of bitter conflict as the new Jewish state is born in the tense atmosphere of civil war. After 2,000 years, a Jewish nation once again exists, and while there is a rattle of against... Zev Scherf was sitting in the back seat of a taxi, sweating bullets. He and the cabbie were dead stuck in Tel Aviv traffic on a Friday afternoon before Shabbat, and the driver wasn't feeling motivated to push things along. But Ze'ev Sherf was late for a meeting. And it was less that he himself be at the meeting and more that the item clutched in his lap make it. For he was gripping, white-knuckled, in the back seat of this cab, the one and only copy of the Declaration of Independence of what was about to be the first Jewish state in 2,000 years. So he filled in the driver what the situation was, some space opened up on the road, and the cabbie floored it. And then they got pulled over for speeding. Okay, but first things first, it is great to be back here at You Wanna Know. Welcome to my fourth season, long time listeners and new listeners alike. For season four, we'll be picking up where season two left off on May 14th, 1948, and delving into the first 19 years of Israel's existence. I encourage you to get a refresher by re-listening to that last episode of season two, number 58, it's called the decision. Don't be embarrassed to go back. Even I had to no judgment, I swear. So I'll be telling a history of Israel from 1948 to 1967. And I say a history because there is no one history. There's no one way of telling it. No one single truth. Everyone's narrative will be different. And this is my version. And if you've been listening to this podcast all along, you know what I like. I like to know what happened with interesting characters, events, big and small, the funny moments, the fun little details all wrapped up in what I hope is a compelling and entertaining story for you. There was so much packed into these early years, bewildering, disorienting years. Everything was up in the air, done on the fly. Things were happening too fast. Decisions were enormously difficult. And above it all was a fight to survive against an array of forces bent on Israel's destruction those early years molded an entire people their nation and a way of life still until today there's a lot of big themes here many of them in contradiction democracy and yet the fate of non-jews in a Jewish nation Jewish unity but deep and sometimes violent division war and peace tragedies and triumphs achievements and mistakes There's a lot to talk about. And so our story begins. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Auto Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The whole thing was supposed to be a secret. When David Ben-Gurion and his leadership team voted to declare the Jewish state, it was a huge risk. The country was at war, Palestinian Arabs and Palestinian Jews were fighting a civil war, Jerusalem was under siege, Arab armies were poised to attack, and many urged Ben-Gurion not to even declare a Jewish state at this moment. They weren't ready. The situation was chaotic and very dangerous. But Ben-Gurion was determined. Determined but wary about publicizing what was going to happen, lest the Arabs launch an attack or the British try to stop it. He was coming up fast on the culmination of one of the single greatest projects in all of Jewish history, but he also knew how easily it could be undone. For the last six months, the Jews in Palestine and the Arabs in Palestine had been fighting a bloody civil war against each other. Back in November of 1947, the United Nations had voted in favor of what was called Partition, Splitting Palestine into three entities a Jewish state, an Arab state, and an international zone for the city of Jerusalem. Only one of those things happened, but hold that thought, we'll get to it down the road. The British were still nominally in charge of Palestine since it was technically still their colony, which we call the British Mandate. But at this point, they were focused on getting out and left the Jews and Arabs to slug it out. The Arabs were clear about their intention to destroy any Jewish state. But like I said, David Ben-Gurion was determined to move forward the moment the British left Palestine. He was the head of the Jewish Agency, a kind of Israeli government before there was Israel, essentially the executive body of the Zionist movement. So he was the man in charge. But there was one problem with Friday, May 14th, 1948. It was going to be Shabbat. Now, even though the Zionists weren't much into religion, no one was going to be the guy to kick off the first Jewish state by violating the Sabbath. Even the atheists knew they were about to need as much divine help as they could get. So the decision was made to hold the establishment ceremony at 4 p.m. on Friday, and to make it short. With Jerusalem under siege, Tel Aviv's Museum of Art was chosen as a location. It was the former home of the city's first mayor, Mayor Dizengoff and held great symbolism as one of the first homes built on the beach back in 1909. Only 300 invites were printed up, and to maintain secrecy were hand-delivered only on the morning of. The recipients were strongly encouraged to keep a tight lid on the whole thing. By the time Ben-Gurion showed up just before 4pm, pretty much the entire city was there to greet him, so, you know, that secrecy thing didn't work. And there turned out to be another problem and by the way when it comes to israeli history just about everything can be followed by the phrase but there was another problem so get used to it the final draft of the declaration of independence had been finished just an hour before and so we're back to zev scherf desperately trying to hail a taxi from cab drivers deeply reluctant to pull over a phenomenon that hasn't changed much in 70 years pulled over for speeding only when he waved the one and only copy of the declaration in his face did the cop let him go and even then didn't provide an escort. So the driver was on his own to plow through heavy traffic of Jews trying to get home for Shabbat. With one minute to spare, the declaration bounded up the stairs of the building and into the hands of Ben-Gurion. At 4 p.m. precisely, Ben-Gurion stepped up to the microphone underneath the portrait of Theodore Herzl. The founder of the Zionist movement had died in 1904, but nevertheless is credited as the father of the nation. As Ben Gurion tried to start the assembled crowd overcome by the immense gravity of the situation burst out singing Hatikva the Zionist anthem expressing the hope that after 2000 years the Jews would be returned to their homeland <laughs> As long as in the heart within a Jewish soul still yearns, and onward towards the ends of the East, and eye still gazes towards Zion, our hope is not yet lost, the hope 2,000 years old, to be a free nation in our land, the land of Zion and Israel. And with that, Ben-Gurion announced that he would now read the scroll of the establishment of the state. But, as ever, and say it with me now, there was another problem. He didn't actually have a scroll. Three weeks before May 14th, a 31-year-old named Mordechai Becham was assigned to draft the foundational document of the Jewish state. With seemingly a lot less terror than I would have had, he began putting ideas to paper from the Hebrew Bible and the United States' Declaration of Independence and other sources. Although little of his original language survived, the drafting committee held to much of his conceptualizing. Under the fussy guidance of Ben-Gurion, who hated most of it and demanded constant rewrites, the committee only finalized the declaration an hour before the ceremony. So there was no time to dress it up nicely in a scroll, and as we heard, just barely enough time to get some typewritten pages through Tel Aviv traffic in the first place. It's like that time when I turned in a midterm paper, kinda late, and my professor blew it all out of proportion, I mean, big picture, dude, what's a few minutes, okay, days, when I could have been writing history for all he knew. I wonder whatever happened to that paper. In any case, there Ben-Gurion stood at a long table under Herzl's portrait and began reading from a loose-leaf sheet of papers on May 14th. The Declaration of Independence is a fascinating document, and a lot can be said, so let me just point out a few things here that I think we should consider. The beginning of the document lays out a justification for the Jewish state. The first sentence says it was in the land of israel that the jewish people arose their spiritual religious and political identity was shaped they enjoyed a life of national sovereignty they created cultural treasures of national and universal significance and they gave to the world the eternal book of books so what we have here is a narrative of jewish history and a sense of jewish identity as flowing from spiritual religious political and cultural sources all rooted in eretz yisrael the land of israel The Declaration goes on to relate the Jews' many accomplishments there in recent decades, from farming to reviving Hebrew, building cities, and learning to defend themselves. The Declaration continues the narrative, walking through the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the Holocaust, the Jewish contribution to the Allied effort during World War II, and the UN partition vote in 1947 to arrive at this moment. This recognition, said Ben-Gurion, by the United Nations of the right of the Jewish people to establish their state is irrevocable. It is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations, in their own sovereign state. It's all a convincing and succinct summation of the historic Jewish attachment to the land, the progress they had made during the Zionist movement, and the recent history that necessitated the creation of the Jewish state. And then... Then came the moment everyone had been waiting for, crowded around radios all over what was still called Palestine, the name of their new Jewish state. In the intro music for just about every Jew I don't know episode, you hear this. Allah <laughs> Kamat Israel. That is Ben-Gurion, at this ceremony, announcing the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel, to be known as the State of Israel. In a 7-3 vote a couple days earlier, the governing council representing the Yeshuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, had voted on the name. A lot of other names were considered. Judah, Zion, Herzliya, names that had historical connection, often to ancient times. Even the Hebrew word for cactus, Zabar, was put forward. But nothing had the resonance of the name Israel. It means to wrestle and was the name that God bestowed on Jacob after Jacob tussled with an angel of the Lord through the night in the book of Genesis. It's a name that reflects the deep G- Jewish past, the Jewish connection to the land, and the powerful notion that the Jews considered themselves a people, not just a religion, a people whose identity and consciousness is grounded in their historical homeland. It was a name that signified hope, achievement, And Jewish dignity but speaking of God it is almost entirely absent from the declaration save for one cryptic reference at the end the last paragraph begins placing our trust in the Rock of Israel we affix our signatures to this proclamation Rock of Israel is the founders way of saying God without using more direct Hebrew references It goes to what I was saying earlier about the inherent contradictions in our big-picture themes of Israel, one of which is the role of Judaism in the state. The Declaration is a decidedly secular document because the Zionist movement itself was secular. The Zionists had consciously rejected the strict observance of traditional Judaism. Although there was an Orthodox Jewish faction that supported Zionism, most religious Jews rejected it. Only God, they argued, not politics, could bring about the redemption of the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael, through the Messiah. So while the Declaration steers clear of any notion of the Jewish theocracy, not even mentioning the word God, Orthodox Judaism goes on to play a tremendously important role in the life of the state. 20% of Israel's population today is Orthodox, they have enormous political power, and Jewish law governs numerous aspects of Israeli society. Ben Gurion and the other drafters were sensitive to the notion that the Jewish state's establishment had to have some grounding in Judaism, and politically speaking, to appeal to the state's religious supporters. But if you read the Declaration as a statement of intent for the new nation, you could be forgiven for thinking that Judaism as a religion would not play much of a role. But that is not how things turned out. instead of the kind of theocratic language that we might expect from a middle eastern country the declaration commits israel to the progressive democratic values we're more familiar with in the west the state of israel it says will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants it will be based on the principles of freedom justice and peace as envisioned by the prophets of israel It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or gender. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. It will safeguard the holy places of all religions, and it will be faithful to the principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Now, that's a tall order and an enormous challenge to live up to, especially for a tiny country presently under siege in a war of annihilation from its neighbors and looking at a hostile Arab population within its new boundaries. Given the current situation, it was an incredibly optimistic perspective. And again, we're looking at contradictions. There's no doubt that in the last seven decades, Israel has admirably lived up to these principles as laid down on its first day of existence. And yet, there have been plenty of times when it hasn't and much work still needs to be done. and As we'll see, it took less than a week from speaking these words for Ben-Gurion to declare martial law on Israel's Arab population. These contradictions go to some of the biggest questions that will face, and still faces, Israel. In the context of democracy, who is in and who is out? Who is the country for? And at the same time, given Israel's unique security situation, What is the right balance between these principles of freedom justice and peace and the need to aggressively defend itself there's no one right answer for a document declaring the beginning of the jewish state it also appeals directly to the arabs for peace and coexistence It calls on the Arab inhabitants of this new state of Israel to fully participate in building the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation. In the same vein, the declaration extends a hand of friendship to the surrounding Arab states, appealing for cooperation and promising that Israel will do its share for the common advancement of the entire Middle East. It's another extraordinarily optimistic perspective, given that these very neighbors were poised to destroy the new state before it even got up and running. And where the Arab states were trying to drive the Jews out of the Middle East, the Declaration instead makes clear that Israel sees itself and its future within that region, irrespective of what the Declaration calls the onslaught launched against us now for months. So again, very optimistic, almost naively. Now, there's so much more that could be said about all of this, of course, but ultimately, here's the thing to know. Israel's Declaration of Independence is based on history, not religion. It situates the Jews as an historical entity, an indigenous people rebuilding themselves in their ancient homeland, but looking to do so in a way that grounds them in the present reality of post-war democracy and international politics. It commits Israel to lofty principles that it won't always be able to meet. And these contradictions were baked into the very first few minutes of the state, providing almost a baseline perspective for us, if you will, to reflect back on as we move forward through its history. Sixteen minutes after beginning to speak, Ben-Gurion concluded his reading of the Declaration. He asked the man sitting next to him, Rabbi Yehuda Lieb Maimon, to say the Shehechianu, the Jewish gratitude prayer acknowledging celebrations and important events. Although the Declaration left out religion, Ben-Gurion wanted to recognize the Jewish significance of this moment, and appeal to the religious community by also acknowledging their importance at the beginning of this whole big endeavor. After signing his name to a sheet of paper which would later be added onto the scroll, Ben-Gurion asked the signers of the declaration to come affix their signatures too. Out of 38 signers, 11 were trapped behind the siege of Jerusalem, so space was left for them to fill in their names later. Two of the 38 signers were women. Golda Meir, a major Zionist leader who became Israel's first and so far only female prime minister in the 1970s, and Rachel Cohen Kagan another Zionist leader who went on to serve in the Knesset, the parliament. Who didn't sign the declaration was my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, our big star celebrity from season two. In New York for the ceremony, Weitzman had led the Zionist movement through decades of careful diplomacy around the world and had been a leader of the movement since its inception in the late 1890s. He was a revered figure. But Ben-Gurion hated him as a political nemesis and made sure that Weitzman would never get to sign the document that he, no less than Ben-Gurion, had helped bring about. Weitzman remained fairly bitter about it, and I'm with him. No one puts birthday buddy in the corner. Also not signing was Menachem Begin, who wasn't even there. He was not a recipient of one of the top secret invites, Still underground to avoid being arrested by the British, he and Ben Gurion also hated each other with a passion, and there was not a chance that Ben Gurion was going to let Bagan and his right wing pen anywhere near the signing page of the Declaration. And that relationship, it's only gonna get worse. With the final signature affixed, the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra, which had been waiting one floor up above, began playing Hatikva and the sound drifted down into the room where those assembled had just made history. There was no turning back now. And no matter what happened, they knew this achievement would yet stand as a singular moment in Jewish history. They had fulfilled the hopes and dreams of millions upon millions of Jews, most of whom, whether in the last 2000 years or just recently in the Holocaust, they never lived to see this moment, but who had prayed for it their whole lives. Hatikva filled the room with the great weight of responsibility and the bittersweet recognition that so much had been achieved at such extraordinary cost. And just after 4.30 p.m., Ben-Gurion said simply, The State of Israel is established. This meeting is adjourned. later, the state of Israel got into a dispute with the family of Mordechai Beham, who had penned that first draft of the declaration. Apparently, Israel had never sought his papers, which had remained with his family. I'm just imagining the original draft of Israel's declaration lying around the living room. In recent years, the family has sought to sell it at a private auction, at which point the government sued. Israel claims that his drafts rightfully belong in the state archives, even though his family points out that when he wrote it, he was a private citizen. There was no state, technically. It has not been an uncontroversial issue, and this past May, 2019, Israel's Supreme Court ruled that the first draft of the declaration does indeed belong with the state archives. And so Israel began with many of the idealistic aspirations and controversial paradoxes that continue to play out today. The declaration that alone the Middle East insisted on equal treatment for all, yet ran up against hard truths about the treatment of the Palestinians. A state that began almost entirely secular in nature later came to be dominated in many ways by the ultra-religious. A document that spoke of peace and neighborliness while those very neighbors launched a war just a few hours later. A country founded by European Jews, but peopled primarily by Middle Eastern ones. Israel is a country of complexity and contradiction, as we're going to see. Everything seems to have its equal and opposite reaction. This isn't about assigning blame, and this is not a polemical podcast. I'm interested in what happened, what decisions were made and why, and what were the consequences. Because I think that understanding this history is essential to understanding what's going on in Israel and the Middle East today. Israelis like to say that they are a normal people living in an abnormal reality. There was never an easy time to be Israel or to live there. And that's true from the very beginning. Within hours of the declaration, five Arab armies invaded, and the new state was plunged into war. So away we go with season four here at Jew I Don't Know. Next time, the very first day of Israel. L'Hithraut, see you later.